Today's reading from God's Word is taken from Mark 9, verses 14 to 29. As we approach this incident, Jesus, uh, with Peter, James, and John, are just arriving. They've been up on a mountain for Jesus' transfiguration. And that's the situation when the scene opens here. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are impossible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You moot and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy is like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Good morning, church family. Good morning, guests who are with us, and good morning to those watching at home. As we remind each other from time to time, watching at home is no substitute for being here and participating in the life of the church family, so we do hope you'll come join us at first opportunity. But that said, we do plan to keep providing the live stream for those who have to be homesick or away on vacation. Many thanks to the volunteers who help make that possible each week. Would you pray with me? Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Around age 12 or 13, I happened to be learning two skills around the same time. 
but the learning processes for these two skills were quite different. One of the things I was learning to do was to mow lawns. When you learn to mow lawns, as you know, there's a lot to think about at first, right? You need somebody with you, talking you through it. You have to follow the procedures that you've learned step by step for, for starting the engine, for changing the bag, for checking the oil. I will neither confirm nor deny whether I had some mishaps in those early attempts that may have severely damaged certain neighbor's lawn equipment. Sorry, Fran and Sue. Uh, but then after a little while, I learned. Not to brag, but midway through high school, I could handle lawn mowing on my own. Like it was second nature. Another thing that I was learning to do, age 12, 13, okay, and this one's, this one's a little bit nerdy. I was learning to play a computer game called Myst. Um, I think I've got a picture of the outside of the, oh yeah, there it is. Mist, anyone? You guys don't remember that. Here's the deal with mist. You're not given a goal. You're not given any objectives. You're not told what the point of the game is. You're just dropped off on this mysterious island, and the only thing to do is just start looking around. But pretty quickly, you start finding clues that you start piecing together to put together these logic puzzles. Uh, so the code that you picked up over here on this side of the island opens up this vault over here on the other side of the island. And so you experience a little success. You start figuring it out. You're like, I can do this. But then eventually the game gets hard and you get stuck. Everybody I've talked to about this game had the same experience. You make progress, but then you've explored everything that you think you can explore like 10 times and you can't figure out what you're supposed to do next. And that's when... I found out you could buy a strategy guide for the game. Uh, and you better believe I bought that. I don't know how anybody ever finished that game, uh, the final stages, without that guide, which in hindsight is a pretty genius way for the creators of the game to make another $20 on every game that they sold. The point I'm making, though, is that unlike learning to mow the lawn, which doesn't require much help once you've been doing it for a while, learning to play Mist actually required more help the further you got into it. Question, is the life of faith more like learning to mow the lawn, or is the life of faith more like learning to play mist? In other words, do we need God's help more as we progress along the way, or do we need God's help less? What do you think? If you think it's more like learning to mow the lawn, in which you can pretty much handle it yourself as long as you get some help right at the beginning, that's what Jesus' disciples seem to have thought. Uh, unfortunately, they're going to learn in today's passage that, like many of you just called out, the life of faith is often just the opposite. Would you turn with me to Mark chapter 9, if you haven't already? While we're turning there, we're going to pick up in verse 14. While we're turning there, I want to acknowledge that some of you know that the life of faith doesn't usually get easier as it goes on because... You've lived to that reality. You conquered addiction only to be faced with grief. You achieved victory over one sin pattern only to get knocked down by another. You found in Jesus the strength to forgive only to be wronged again. And, and now you're saying, I didn't ask for this when I signed up to follow Jesus. If that's you, your life demonstrates, as many of our lives do, that the further down the road we go in following Jesus, the more of his help we need, the more dependence we must cultivate. Our whole sermon series this fall is 
about walking this way of following Jesus. You've seen the signs here on the walls. By chapter 9, verse 14, the disciples are starting to have some idea of what it means to follow him. They've had some really cool experiences. They've been invited to participate in miracles. They've casted demons out of people. They've healed the sick all in the power of their teacher, Jesus. Last week, in the first verses of chapter 9, you may remember three of the 12 disciples were up with Jesus having this mountaintop experience. Remember that? They got a sneak peek at Jesus' true identity behind the curtain, so to speak, his divine glory as his clothes glowed white and they heard God speak from a cloud saying, this is my son. But as you know, if you've ever had a euphoric mountaintop experience with Jesus, he never lets us stay there, at least not this side of heaven. We have to come back down to the world of ordinary life where there are struggles and brokenness, pain and sin. And it's back at the bottom of the mountain in the real world where Jesus has yet another lesson for his disciples here that will challenge their perceptions of what it's going to be like to follow him. So we only have time to briefly unfold the four sections of this story, but here they are. In verse 14, we see failure. Uh, 19 to 24, faith. 25 to 27, power. And 28 and 29, understanding about all that has transpired. So failure, faith, power, understanding. Briefly, let's jump in uh, with verses 14 to 18. Failure, a lack of power that the disciples experience. Follow along as I reread those verses. And when they, those that were up on the mountain, came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So somebody said, Jesus is in town. Uh, But when father and son show up looking for Jesus, Jesus isn't around. He's up on the mountain. But dad's desperate, so he brings his afflicted son to the nine remaining disciples. Uh, It says, excuse me, you're Jesus' protégés? Did did he teach you how to handle situations like this one? It reminds me a little of uh, my early months as associate pastor here when Pastor Craig would go on vacation, and I honestly didn't really have any idea what I was doing uh, quite yet, to be totally honest. Anytime my phone rang, back then during a Pastor Craig vacation, my heart rate would get a little elevated. Am I going to be equipped to handle this thing that is coming up? So Jesus' disciples, though, they seem to have a little more confidence than that. They say, hey, we sure can help your son, sir. Jesus commissioned us to cast out demons back in chapter 3, verse 15, and chapter 6, verse 7. We've done it before, chapter 6, verse 13. Yet, for the first time, they try and they fail. And it becomes a spectacle. They've drawn a crowd The fact that they lack the power to heal this boy subjects them to criticism from those watching, maybe even mockery. And so when Jesus comes down the mountain in verse 14, he walks into what has at this point become an argument. Jesus wants some clarity on the matter, so he asks what's going on. The boy's dad steps up in the crowd to explain. His son has symptoms loosely resembling what we would know as epilepsy plus a loss of speech and hearing, all of which he attributes to a spirit, a.k.a. a demon. But before we rush to the conclusion that this is just 
some sort of primitive explanation of the electrical disturbance in the brain that we know as epilepsy. Remember that they knew, like we do, that not every ailment is attributable to demons. It's just that in this particular case, it's clear to all involved that these particular afflictions are being caused by a demon that's living inside this boy. Now, of course, that's a little outside the range of most of our normal experience in the 21st century West, so let's take a quick moment to clarify a few things. A, the Bible unequivocally teaches that demons are real. They're fallen, evil, spiritual beings. Jesus taught they were real. The global church, past and present, has always believed that demons are real. B, this is not a claim that anyone who has these symptoms has a demon. I want to be really clear about that. The text implies no such thing. Similar symptoms can be and are experienced with no demonic involvement at all. C, this is a clear example of the fact, though, that demonic influence can have real physical effects on people. Our bodies, our minds, our spirits, they're all connected. And so, as such, this boy is in real danger of physical harm due to the actions of this evil spirit living inside of him. And finally, D, we're reminded here that we mere humans are really no match for the supernatural power of demons, at least not on our own. Add all that up, and this is terrifying for this dad. Imagine being him. Some of you can't imagine being him because you've been worried sick for your own kids whom you've seen nearing the brink of destruction due to one affliction or another, self-harm, defiance, refusal of help, substance abuse. Whatever form your kid's affliction has taken, you've had a front row seat for it and you've felt utterly helpless painfully aware that even if you muster up all your resources and all the strength that you have, you're ultimately unable to do anything to deliver your child from their affliction. That's gut-wrenching, isn't it? It could be any of us. Let's shift gears for a second, though. It, It may also be fruitful to put ourselves for a moment in the shoes of the disciples now. What a gut punch this failure would have been for them. Remember, they've cast out demons before. Chapter 6, verse 13, you can see it there. On their list of skills we want to learn from Jesus, they've already uh, penciled a check mark in the casting out demons box. But wait, they say, this time our trusted techniques don't work? And the crowds are mocking Jesus because of our failure? Why is this happening to us? Feels like we've taken about three huge steps backwards. Maybe they have gone backwards. We'll we'll address that later. But whether or not they've gone backwards, their journey along the way is definitely starting to lead them into more difficult terrain. And for many, though maybe not all of us, that'll be our experience too. For most of us, the Christian life tends to get harder after the early stages. So it's not uncommon for a Christian to think, oh, I can handle this one on my own only to find herself powerless to do even the things she used to be able to do with ease in the Christian life. Confession, I'm I'm living this a little bit right now. I happen to be in a season like that, aspects of Christian life and ministry that I thought that I had mastered. Things I've basically done in my sleep, I'm suddenly finding difficult. I'm failing at things that I thought were in my sweet spot which makes me terrified about what's going to happen with the other things that I've never felt all that good at. 
the rest of this passage will provide us with the opportunity to uh, reflect on this more deeply, but without getting too far ahead of ourselves, I do want to just say that I personally am learning to embrace that God intends to use my failures to grow me. He's showing me just how powerless I am, like these disciples here, in order to make me rely on the one I should have been coming to for power in the first place, instead of leaning on my own strength and ability and experience. So if you've been failing, stay with us this morning. God may have a plan to use your failure too. Let's move to the second section here, faith. Faith and what to do with doubt. Follow along as I reread verses 19 to 24. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I labeled this section faith because you see how it's bookended by that theme? Oh, faithless generation at the beginning. Uh, I believe, help my unbelief at the end. All the same root word in Greek, faith, belief. To Jesus, that's what the disciples' failure was all about. It's not that they got rusty on their techniques and tactics for casting out demons. They were faithless. And Jesus isn't the first in the Bible to come down from an experience with God on a mountain to find a faithless generation waiting down below. Didn't Moses come down from Sinai to find a faithless generation of his own? It's just one more example of how, as we saw last week, Mark is setting up this whole story to present Jesus as the true and better Moses forming a reconstituted Israel. But can you imagine how it must have felt for the disciples to be included in Jesus' assessment that this was a faithless generation? That one must have cut deep. But as many of us have experienced, those sorts of cuts can actually be good for us. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, as the proverb says, right? And you better believe it was a wound when Jesus looked at them and said, how long am I going to be here bearing with you? Verse 19. If I say something like that to my kids, you can almost guarantee it's because I'm just selfishly venting, right? Thoughtlessly whining. If sinless Jesus laments like this, it's because he loves his hearers deeply and wants to benefit them. In other words, he's willing to wound them, as he does with these words, purposefully, as a good friend does, in order to help them see things more clearly, and in this case, in order to challenge them in their faith. Now, what exactly is the problem with their faith, though? Like, let's be fair to them. Clearly, their faith isn't zero, right? They've given up a lot to follow Jesus. So what exactly is the problem here with their faith? Maybe it's a quantity or magnitude issue that they don't have enough faith. 
that would be confusing, wouldn't it? Because doesn't Jesus talk at times about only needing to have faith the size of a mustard seed and you can move mountains? That's why I don't actually think the issue is that they don't have enough faith, but rather that their faith is directed at the wrong object. In other words, as they're trying to cast out this demon, they're doing so with faith not in Jesus, but in themselves. Like, we've got this one. We've done this before. We can relate, can't we? Contrast that, though, with the dad's faith in this story. It's not clear that he has all that much of it either. Quantity-wise, magnitude-wise, he certainly wishes he had more, according to verse 24. He's talking about his unbelief. But unlike the disciples, whatever faith he does have is directed at the right object, namely Jesus, not at himself. This guy has given up on any delusion that he can do anything about this situation to save his son. He's desperately throwing himself at the mercy of Jesus, and that's exactly where all of us are supposed to be, where the disciples were supposed to be. Verse 22, if, if you can do anything, Jesus, have compassion on us and help us. In other words, we know there's nobody else who can do anything. Can you, Jesus? And Jesus responds by giving him a little bit of a hard time for a second, right? If you can, what do you mean if you can? Right? Think about what dad could have said in response to Jesus' mini challenge there in verse 23. He could have gone the ashamed route by slumping his shoulders, saying, you're right, Jesus, there's a lot I'm unsure about. Still have some doubts. I have no business asking for your attention. I should go home. Alternatively, he could have gone the prideful route, puffed up his chest, pretended he had more faith than he really did, like, no, 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 sorry, I misspoke, Jesus. I believe fully, I do. He doesn't take either the ashamed or the prideful route, both of which would have been ultimately focused on himself. He, he opts instead for honest, desperate humility. I do believe, help my unbelief. That response has become an iconic Christian phrase for a reason. This is a paradigmatic example of the faith that we're all called to show as people who don't have it all together, yet who refuse to give up on seeking Jesus. His father doesn't necessarily have much faith, but the faith he has is directed at the right object, and in the end, that's all that matters. It's all that has ever mattered. So friend, if, if you have some doubts... I hope you're encouraged by this. I'll tell you what I hear Jesus saying to me here in my doubts. Of course you have doubts. You're a sinful, broken human. I know your doubts. I never expected anything else. Ask me to help you with your unbelief. So we've had a contrast here in this section with regards to faith. You've got the disciples over here, veteran Jesus followers, who have lost their desperate dependence and started to trust themselves. And then over here, we've got this dad who is kind of new to Jesus. His faith is small, but at least he has abandoned all trust in himself. Question, at this juncture in your life, do you see yourself more in the disciples' self-sufficiency or in the dad's desperation? The disciples knew Jesus better than the dad did, yet they slipped into putting their faith in their own goodness maybe their own ministry abilities, maybe their own experience. That's where their faith was placed. Meanwhile, the dad knows that all he has to bring, all he has to bring to Jesus is nothing. And it turns out that nothing is exactly the one thing that's needed. That's what faith looks like, the sort of faith that's pleasing to God and that tends to unleash displays 
of his power. Let's turn to that power now, verses 25 to 27. We see here the imbalanced realities of spiritual conflict. Not a fair fight. Follow along as I reread verses 25 to 27. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mutant deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse. So most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. We won't be able to spend a lot of time here in this section. I mostly just want to point out the actual spiritual showdown in this passage, verses 25 to 27, is not a fair fight. With just a few words from his mouth, Jesus conquers. This is only the latest verification of what Mark has already demonstrated in his gospel, that demons are subject to Jesus. In fact, the very sight of Jesus is so terrifying to this demon that in verse 20, do you see what he does? The moment Jesus comes into view, the demon panics, throws the boy to the ground, and starts convulsing him violently. Then, when Jesus commands the demon to leave and never come back, he doesn't have to say it twice. That demon knows he has no choice but to obey. He's under Jesus' authority. Isn't it good news that the one who lives in us is greater than any of the evil spiritual forces we might one day find ourselves up against? It's not a fair fight. Any fear of evil spirits that we might have when we read an episode like this one can be assuaged when we realize that any demons that may be around have no choice but to submit to the authority of King Jesus. Now, granted, right after Jesus casts out the demon, the boy looks dead. But that just gives Jesus a chance to provide onlookers with a preview of what he's ultimately come to do, to raise from the dead. And I draw that connection because I think Mark himself does. In verse 27, when Mark uses those two verbs, Jesus lifted him up and he arose. Those are terms elsewhere used for resurrection. As such, Jesus' calm raising of a seemingly dead person is a foreshadowing. And it shows us that Jesus isn't over his head here, scrambling for a plan B when he sees this boy looking like a corpse. A seemingly lifeless body is no problem for someone who's operating with resurrection power. I don't know who needs to hear that this morning. That between Jesus and the evil spiritual forces seeking to destroy you, it's, it's not a fair fight. It's not a Star Wars situation in which forces of good and forces of evil are kind of evenly balanced. In the battle between Jesus and evil spirits, the power differential is astronomical. Can't be calculated. And that awesome resurrection power of Jesus is the very same power that he wants to exercise in your life today in those places where the enemy has perhaps started to inflict some damage. Have you invited in his power to do that work? Finally, last two verses, we uh, get with the disciples some understanding of what has transpired in this story. Follow along with me as I reread those two verses. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So the boy has been healed, but the disciples are still shook. Jesus, we already mastered the skill of exercising demons. You told us you'd given us the power to do it. 
Why weren't we able to do it today? They ask him. And you know, it's good to respond to failure with introspection like this. Wallowing in failure, that's unproductive, but this isn't wallowing. They're asking Jesus this question to learn from this and try to grow. Jesus responds by explaining, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This kind? Some commentators think that this kind refers to uh, demon encounters in general. Like, this kind of ministry challenge requires prayer. Personally, I'm not convinced that that's the most natural way that Jesus could say that. Uh, Effectively, then he's saying demon encounters can only be driven out by prayer. He's using the verb driven out. It seems to me, as weird as this is, that this might actually be hinting at there being different kinds of evil spirits, some more difficult to drive out than others from a human perspective. Whatever Jesus means by this kind— It's clear that he attributes the disciples' failure in this case to prayerlessness. He already called their failure faithlessness back in verse 19. Now he elaborates by tying faithlessness to prayerlessness. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer implies that they didn't pray like they would have needed to in order to cast this demon out. That raises a question, though. Is is Jesus suggesting that they neglected to pray in the moment? And that was the problem. Like these normally prayerful people just rushed right in with, with their demon-expelling tactics without praying first, and that's why it didn't work? Maybe. Or is it possible that, though they may have thrown up a prayer in the moment, Jesus is referring to a prayerfulness in the hours and days and weeks in advance of this encounter that was lacking in them, but that would have empowered them to be victorious in such a spiritual battle? Other commentators think so. It's, it's hard to say. Mark doesn't give us anything about them praying right before they tried to cast out the demon, but that may not mean much because we don't have anything about Jesus praying right before he cast the demon out either. To me, it seems like in the moment, prayerlessness can't be the totality of the disciples' problem. As if their hearts were just fully dependent on God, so prayerful in their lives up to that moment, but then in the adrenaline rush, they just forgot to say a prayer right then and God dinged them for their forgetfulness by shutting off their power to cast out demons. That doesn't compute for me with the sort of God depicted in Mark's gospel. That's why I think Jesus is actually not just saying, hey, remember to say a prayer before you try to cast out a demon. Like he's not interested in fine-tuning their formula. He's interested in pointing them to more of a dependent posture, more of a prayerful lifestyle the sort of lifestyle that the disciples are beginning to miss out on because they've begun to rely on themselves. I wish I could say that this prayerlessness demonstrating a lack of faith was unrelatable. I wish I didn't see myself in them so clearly. Taking matters into my own hands when it's a task in which I've experienced success in the past. Can you see yourself in them too? This is less about the magnitude of our faith than it is about the object of our faith. And prayerfulness or not is the evidence of what really is the object of one's faith. That's why Jesus can, in one breath, attribute their failure to faithlessness and in the next breath attribute their failure to prayerlessness. Prayerlessness is the number one manifestation of faithlessness. 
So as we look back on this passage, failure, faith, power, understanding, we are ready for this big idea. Since we are powerless on our own, let's pray in faithful dependence as we prepare for spiritual conflict. Since we are powerless on our own, as the disciples found out that they were, let's pray in faithful dependence as we prepare for spiritual conflict. That spiritual conflict is coming. Some of you are in the thick of it right now. If you're not, it's around the corner. We all eventually find ourselves under attack and we don't get to choose when. May we not be surprised when it comes. The way of following Jesus was always supposed to be more like learning to play mist than learning to mow the lawn. It's not something that we're hoping to master so that we can handle it on our own without help. It's something we're expected, expecting to be mastered by in such a way that we learn to throw ourselves at Jesus' feet time and time again for the help that we know we continue to need. And when we do throw ourselves at his feet, we find him to be both terrifyingly powerful and extravagantly gracious. As we get to know the good news of what he's done for us, we reread a story like this one and realize that in a real sense, the predicament of this boy is the predicament that you and I deserve and the predicament that we naturally find ourselves in. Yet, Jesus would one day become this boy in our place. Here's what I mean. He's thrown down. He's tormented and bruised. His voice is snuffed out and silenced like this boy's was. Didn't Isaiah say about Jesus 700 years before he came, like a sheep before its shears is silent? So he didn't open his mouth. Jesus allowed himself to become this son in our story, whose father looked on as he was tormented by the enemy, led silently to his death. And that would have been the greatest of all tragedies, except that it was on purpose. Jesus chose to take the place of the son in the story so that you and I who deserve this spiritual torment nevertheless no longer have to fear that fate. If you haven't yet given your life to Christ and you came here this morning aware of some destructive force in your life that's threatening to do you harm, do you see Jesus this morning? If you'll let go of all hope of saving yourself and, and throw yourself on him, he's ready to set you free and give you a new life. He's done so for many here, and we'd love to talk to you about it. If you have given your life to Christ, and like the disciples, you are facing an uninvited battle that has exposed your weaknesses, may our weaknesses drive us to his strength. Let's stop gritting our teeth and going it alone. Let's come before him with empty hands, as this father did in the story, pleading for him to give us his power to fight the enemy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you had every right to leave us alone in our suffering and affliction, much of which was self-imposed. You had every right to leave us in our sin and allow us to face the consequences that we deserved for rebelling against you. Yet, in your great love for us. You chose to intervene. You didn't remain aloof from us. You came and entered into our story. 
in the person of Jesus Christ. You died in our place, taking the suffering that we deserved so that we could experience life with you, free from the bondage of sin and suffering. I pray for the person who's here this morning who has never experienced that love, has never known that grace. Pray that someone would receive that even this morning, that they'd experience their chains being set free, that they'd be uh, stepping over this morning into resurrection life in you. I pray for all of us, even those who have already placed our faith in you, that we would trust you and not ourselves. And when we slip into relying on our own selves, that we would turn and throw ourselves upon you once again in humble dependence. In Jesus' name, amen.